podcast dedicated to the pursuit of truth through wonder with me, Sophie Burkhardt. I'm thrilled because today we're talking about why you should read good books. It should be an obvious truth that there are such things as good books and bad books. But alas, our modern world has so subjectified art that I fear many people would instead split books into books I like and books I don't like. This watering down and privatization of literature destroys any objective notion of what makes a book good, and it ends up relegating all literature to the realm of sheer subjective pleasure. When we apply the categories of liking as the only way to understand literature, then we end up putting such masterpieces as the Brothers Karamazov on the same level as some trashy romance, romance that is in the modern sense of the word. I want to argue here that there are such things as good books and bad books, and more than that, I want to exhort you to read the good ones. Our view of the arts has become so subjective that it sounds at first rather presumptuous of me to claim that some books are inherently better than other books, and that there are a great many books not worth reading at all. I don't particularly recommend burning books, but honestly, so many books today would serve us better as kindling than as books to actually be read. So I shall dare to be a bit presumptuous, for it's not I who determine by my own opinion what books are good. Neither am I exhorting you to ditch bad books because I'm a snob and I wish you to be a snob with me. I, like George MacDonald, wish to help you, quote, discern regarding books, not merely between the good and the evil, but between the good and the not so good. And this not for the sake of sharpening the intellect, still less of generating that self-satisfaction which is the closest attendant upon criticism, but for the sake of choosing the best path and the best companions upon it, end quote. For now, I shall define good books as those which have been passed down to us in a long tradition. These are books which have stood the test of time, have in fact transcended both time and culture, so that they have transformed the minds and hearts of generations of people across the globe. These books encompass a variety of writing styles and genres, but they all serve as good and worthy companions on the path of the good life. I'll define that more in a moment. I'll be relying primarily upon texts from the Western canon, along with some newer books written in the same tradition. But by no means do I think good literature comes only from the Western tradition. I simply think that for those of us here in the West, these books serve as a good launching point. Once we've been trained at the feet of these masters, and discerning between the good and the evil, the good and the not-so-good, then we may with confidence read books from countless other traditions, read new books just off the press, and explore books long hidden from us. While stories from other parts of the globe may take a vastly different form from those of the West, they too may help us to live the good life, and indeed they will give us such wonderful new insights that we would be foolish not to read them. Now, This is all about learning from wise mentors. We learn from those who have gone before us and have written these stories. We learn too from people today who love and understand this tradition. There are a host of places to go to find good books, and there are trustworthy mentors sharing good books from across history and culture. Don't worry, I'll point you in a good direction before the end of this episode, and I'll link to a few resources in the show notes. Now to the opposite. Bad books are precisely those which make for poor companions in life. They're the sort of books which distract us from the good life, provide stumbling blocks to the pursuit of the good life, or even worse, turn us aside from the good life altogether. These books have not stood the test of time. They do not transcend time and culture. They pop up in a wide variety of styles and genres from around the world, but they are almost always, or at least a lot of the times, written poorly. Now, by poorly written, I refer to the technical aspects of writing, that is, poor grammar and poor syntax. This is, of course, an introductory perusal of good versus bad books. However, I hope to further elucidate the difference between the two as we continue throughout this podcast. Ultimately, however... 
I think you can only really come to know the difference when you have read enough good books and then you pick up a bad book. That is because a good book is a whole. You can't break it down into a bunch of fragmented qualities to understand it. That is, a good book cannot be broken down into a formula that can then be recreated at will. You must learn what a good book is through experiencing the whole of it. You cannot learn what a good book is by exhaustively categorizing what makes up a good book. Because I love philosophy, I just have to pipe in that here is an excellent example of why it's also important to learn philosophy. The idea that we can only understand things by breaking them into pieces and then analyzing those pieces comes from a post-enlightenment era shift in epistemology, which is the philosophy of knowledge. It's important to recognize that that view of knowledge is so ingrained within us at this point that we don't even realize it, even though it's a particularly modern approach to knowledge. I should very much like to join the ranks of C.S. Lewis and argue that we need, in many ways, to return to a pre-modern philosophy of the cosmos. So let this be an exercise in breaking out of that system of thought. And this also reminds me of part of Aristotle's epistemology. Like Plato, Aristotle argued that there are forms of things. That is, there is the form of a chair. Plato's forms and Aristotle's forms, however, are quite different. For Plato, the forms are an eternal reality that make a thing what it is. They exist in a separate, non-physical realm, and we know the forms of things, and thus recognize these things, because our eternal souls exist there when they're not in our bodies. All learning, then, is really helping our souls remember what they already know. For Aristotle, however, the form of something is the particular arrangement of its matter. The forms, then, don't exist independently in a separate realm. Instead, we come to know and recognize forms through experience. Once we've experienced enough chairs, we know a chair's form and we can recognize other chairs in the future. This is, like always, an oversimplified explanation of both Plato and Aristotle, but I think Aristotle's view can help us understand what it means to know a good book. We can come to know the form of a good book by experiencing enough good books. Yes, I know the form of a good book is not physical, so it's not exactly Aristotle's epistemology. After all, good includes a value judgment, but I think it's a helpful analogy. All right, moving on. Now that we've made a division between good books and bad books, it's time to turn our attention to why it's so important to read good books and not read bad books. Here's our truth. Reading good books is not an option. It's a necessity. I'm going to remind you of the podcast I did a few weeks ago, titled Telos and Eschatology, where I argued that we need to reclaim a teleological understanding of humanity in the world. If you haven't listened to it yet, I'd recommend doing that before continuing on this one, because I think it'd be helpful for our following discussion. Telos, if you recall, means end. The telos of humanity is our end goal or purpose, towards which we ought to be striving. I argue that our telos is to be made in the image of Christ. It's something that will not be fulfilled until the final resurrection, but it is something towards which we should be striving now. It is, of course, the Holy Spirit working the change within us. Nevertheless, we are commanded to become like Christ. The good life, I would argue, is a life lived in the pursuit of becoming the image of Christ. That means I must look at my life as a narrative unity. That, as a whole, it is a life in pursuit of becoming the image of Christ. Jessica Houghton Wilson, a professor at the University of Dallas, has a new outstanding book called The Scandal of Holiness, Renewing Your Imagination in the Company of Literary Saints. The book teaches us how to read books as a spiritual practice so that we may imitate the saints within the pages who pursue holiness. As Wilson says, quote, It is the story of a life lived in longing for the holy that I most want to emulate. End quote. Moving towards holiness and moving towards the image of Christ are, I believe, one and the same goal using different words. And I think using these different words at different times probably helps to emphasize different aspects of that same final end. 
What I love is how Wilson shows that this emulation of those who strive for holiness is not the same as attempting to perfect ourselves, for the characters she writes about are not perfect, just as we are not. She says, quote, We are not responsible for perfecting ourselves, so we need not stock our shelves with self-improvement books in an endless disquieting quest to make ourselves into who we think God wants us to be, end quote. It is enough that we strive after holiness, after becoming the image of Christ. It is God himself who will work the change in us. Okay, back to the good life as one lived in pursuit of becoming the image of Christ. Alistair McIntyre writes in After Virtue that, quote, The unity of a human life is the unity of a narrative quest. Without some at least partly determinate conception of the final telos, there could not be any beginning to a quest. It is in the course of the quest, and only through encountering and coping with various particular harms, dangers, temptations, and distractions which provide any quest with its episodes and incidents that the goal of the quest is finally to be understood. A quest is always an education both as to the character of that which is sought and in self-knowledge." As McIntyre makes abundantly clear in his book, we need to read stories simply to understand how our own life works. If we can't understand the idea of a narrative unity in a book, then how could we ever understand our own lives as a narrative unity? Reading and hearing stories is thus a fundamental action for both children and adults to know what it means to be human and how to live. This is huge. Children need stories. We need stories. Before we even get to the good books, it's important to know that we need books, or more broadly, stories. We need the mythologies and folklores of old from around the globe. We need the medieval quests, and we need the fairy tales. The McIntyre continues to tie this idea to the virtues, for his book is, after all, a critique of modern moral philosophy and a call to return to virtue ethics. The virtues, therefore, he writes, are to be understood as those dispositions which will not only sustain practices and enable us to achieve the goods internal to practices, but which will also sustain us in the relevant kind of quest for the good. By enabling us to overcome the harms, dangers, temptations, and distractions which we encounter, and which will furnish us with increasing self-knowledge and increasing knowledge of the good. End quote. Early on, I stated that good books are those which help us to live the good life. That means they are those which help us become more like the image of Christ. They give us literary saints to emulate, and they give us literary non-saints, villains, antichrists, call them what you will, to not emulate. They also help to cultivate the virtues we need to live the good life. Sometimes they do this through the lives and actions of the saints in their pages. Other times they do this through the world they create, or simply through the overarching story they tell. For example, fairy tales, and many other stories, cultivate our hope by helping us to imagine the final fulfillment and restoration of all things. But there are countless other virtues that good books help us to cultivate. Love, faith, mercy, justice, prudence, courage, the list goes on. A number of authors have written on how Jane Austen's books are arguments for practicing the virtues. They're not primarily romances. I mean, even think of some of their titles, Pride and Prejudice, Sense and Sensibility. Perhaps seeing them this way will also help more boys to discover the wisdom and delight to be found in Austen's work. Bad books, on the other hand, don't help us live the good life. These books can take a variety of forms. They may, in fact, cultivate vices within us, encouraging us to be hopeless, selfish, hateful, or a host of other things. How many movies and books have you encountered that tell you the answer lies within yourself, that you are all you need, that you are whoever you decide to be, that you are, in fact, the hero of your story? These are all lies, and they're all mainstream not only in movies but in books, too. Believing these lies and cultivating these vices will either slow you in pursuit of your holiness, of Christ himself, or they will derail you altogether. Do not doubt the power of a story to capture your heart and mind. 
Some books are simply poorly written, but even this encourages us to be content with what is mediocre. And is not that itself a vice? Other bad books are written merely to give us pleasure, but it is a baser pleasure. For once you move beyond these books, you will find that true enjoyment comes from books written for something greater and higher. Now, I'm hardly against simple pleasures, like a good cup of tea or a walk in the woods, but books written for pleasure do not nourish us in a way those simple pleasures do. They reduce our human desires to mere appetite, they feed the lowest part of ourselves, and they miss the heart and mind altogether. Why waste our time with such books when there are such better books to be read? If you would read only bad books, you would be better off not reading at all, and spending your time in other more worthwhile activities like running, gardening, playing games with friends and family, or a whole host of other things that are not obstructing you from the good life, but are, in fact, a vital part of it. I should hope, however, that I've made the point that reading good books is necessary. That means that while you should exercise, should build things with your hands, should spend valuable time with your community, should learn music, etc., etc., you should also read good books. People have told me countless times that they simply don't like reading or don't have time for it. To the first objection, I don't particularly care. <laughs> it's a fact of human life that just because you don't like something doesn't mean it isn't good for you. Children don't like eating vegetables, but a good parent makes them eat vegetables anyways. It may be harder for some people to read than others, but that doesn't make it any less valuable. Reading fiction is not a hobby for people who call themselves readers. It is a crucial skill for living the good life. To the second objection, you make time for what you think is important. And I don't expect everyone to read 100 books a year, or 50 books a year, or even 30 books a year. But you absolutely have time to read some books. Reading good books will cultivate the virtues you need in this quest that is the human life. Don't miss out on one of your greatest aids in this world simply because you don't like books or don't have time for them. I'll give one longer example of how a particular good book helps us to live the good life, and then I shall conclude with a list of a few books and several other resources to get you started on the path to reading good books. The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe is a story most people are likely familiar with. I'll share just a few of the ways that this book helps us to live the good life. It reminds us that we are not the hero of our story, for without Aslan, the children and the rest of Narnia are lost. Edmund wishes to see himself as the hero and to have power over his siblings, but this false desire lands him in the witch's clutches, and it is only Aslan's sacrifice that can save him. The book also helps us to cultivate bravery as we imitate Peter, who, though a child still, must fight an army and eventually step into the role of high king. We're able to see and learn how to grow in gentleness, kindness, faith, love, and wonder. And instead of just telling us about these virtues, Lewis shows us to them through the living person of Lucy. As Jessica Houghton Wilson says about the brothers Karamazov, it, quote, taught me what the word love means, not in theory, but in practice, end quote. We are also given hope, for we see the breaking of winter and the righting of wrong at the end of the story, which is the same end that we wait for now. I could go on and on, but hopefully this rather quick and shallow list gives you an idea of how deeply we can be transformed by the good books that we read. But reading good books is hard. I know it is. Everything about these books tends to be more challenging. The syntax, the characters, the plots, etc., etc. But hey, the best things are always the hardest. Don't give up because it's challenging in the beginning. You have to train yourself to read good books. It's like building muscle, or even more so like learning to play an instrument. I started taking violin lessons again last fall after 10 years of not playing. And uh, yeah, it's been hard. At the very beginning, I sounded so awful. My bowl hold needed an overhaul. My fingers had almost entirely forgotten where the notes on the strings were. My bowing actions weren't consistent in the slightest, and, and I could continue. There are a lot of things that can go wrong with playing the violin. 
But now, after about seven months of playing, I am leaps and bounds better. My bow hold is great, my tonalization is richer and smoother, my intonation has vastly improved, and so on and so forth. But violin is still hard, and there's still so much more learning to do. And though I now have easier pieces down, there will always be new and harder pieces to struggle through and play. I love that there will always be room to learn and improve as a violinist, even when I get frustrated in the middle of a difficult piece. That's how it is with reading good books. It starts out incredibly hard, and you'll probably understand about as much as the poor souls who had to listen to my scratchy violin playing. But the more you work at it, the more you will improve, especially if you have a good mentor guiding you along the way. Seriously, seek out people who are ahead of you in the reading life and learn from them. Life is all about imitation. What you'll soon find is that reading good books is vastly more enjoyable than reading bad or simply less good books. Just like playing Vivaldi is vastly more enjoyable than playing Row, Row, Row Your Boat or London Bridges Falling Down. And of course, the analogy is not perfect. But I promised to give you some books to start off with and some resources for more books. I'd recommend starting with children's books that are part of this tradition since they're easier to read but still so good and then moving on from there. Here's some good children's books to read. The Chronicles of Narnia by C.S. Lewis, Anne of Green Gables by Ellen Montgomery, The Hobbit by Tolkien, At the Back of the North Wind and the Princess and the Goblin by George MacDonald, A Wrinkle in Time by Madeline Lingle, Churchill Socks by Mez Bloom, Adventures with Waffles by Maria Parr, and The Little Prince by Antoine de Saint-Exupéry, which I try to pronounce every time and I probably fail because I don't know French. But from there, I'd recommend some of the following authors. Now, some are harder than others, and those are at the end of this list. Jane Austen, Elizabeth Googe, Dorothy Sayers, C.S. Lewis, Sigrid Unset, Fyodor Dostoevsky, and Flannery O'Connor. And of course, you want to go back further, too, to classics like the Iliad, the Odyssey, the Aeneid, Beowulf, the Divine Comedy, and so much more. There's so many more books to be read. Now, uh, here's some good resources, and I'm going to put these in the show notes as well, for beginning the journey into reading good books, especially for understanding how they aid us in living the good life. The Scandal of Holiness by Jessica Houghton Wilson, which I have already talked about several times. I haven't finished it yet, but I've read, I think, over half of it, and it is so good. On Reading Well by Karen Swallow Pryor, she really focuses in on virtues and how we can cultivate virtues through reading well. A Well-Read Life, which is a podcast by Beth Jameson. The description here is a place to share stories about the reading life and good books. Join host Beth Jameson as she meanders through her reading journey to discover the books that make up a well-read life. Seriously, this podcast is amazing. You will find an incredible list of books to read, and Beth's discussions of how they've shaped and impacted her life are wonderful. If you want an example of how to live a well-read life, this is the place to go. Another one, Risking Enchantment, a podcast by Rachel Sherlock. She doesn't always talk about books in this podcast, but every episode is a delight. It's all about sort of seeing the world imaginatively and sacramentally, and it's just awesome, and her book episodes are quite wonderful and delightful. Then the Literary Life podcast, which is the most, I guess, expert level of the podcast. Um, It's a podcast where the hosts go through entire books, chapter by chapter, or a few chapters at a time. It can be helpful at times, and it certainly will give you a list of good books to read. If you do listen to episodes on the books, make sure you read the chapters before listening to the episode. The host would agree with me, I'm sure, that you can't just pull what you want to learn out of a book and distill it in another form. It is the form of the book itself that embodies the truth of the book, and it's only by reading the book as a whole and experiencing it as a whole that we can learn and grow. There will always be more books to challenge you and more books to explore. 
Reading good books is forever transformational and it's vital to living the good life of the Christian. So don't wait. Pick up a good book now and begin the journey.